I'm Adam German from Housing Japan, welcoming you to HJ Insight, a podcast dedicated to educating listeners about the ins and outs of the central Tokyo real estate market. Before we begin a little housekeeping, Housing Japan is Tokyo's premier residential real estate firm. We have divisions dedicated to long-term and short-term leasing, sales and purchase, property management, and project development. If you're looking for any residential real estate services in the central Tokyo area, then we're here to help. Visit www.housingjapan.com for more information. And now, on with the show. Um, before we get into Niseko and, and, and town planning and et cetera, et cetera, a little bit of history about yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you come to Japan? Um, I'd been practicing as an architect for close to about uh, 15 years before coming to Japan, and I was actually in the United States. Uh, practicing on the West Coast mainly for a, a firm in Los Angeles for about uh, nine years um, and uh, had the opportunity to visit Japan on business a number of times, um, was fascinated by the country and, uh, and I've always been interested in uh, contemporary Japanese architecture. Um, so I actually came to Japan on a sabbatical to um, to explore a few of the, uh, the cultural themes that were interesting to me. Um, and this was back in 1997. Um, and in short order, uh, through a project that um, an associate uh, of mine asked me to, uh, to do for them, we won an, a national design award and one thing led to another and before we knew it, uh, we'd grown a firm here uh, fairly rapidly. But it was really a cultural interest, an interest in Japanese uh, society in Japanese modern culture and modern architecture that brought me here. Okay, and how long ago was that? Well, it was back in 1997, so it's about 16 years now. So okay. it's quite, it's, it was a while ago. <laughs> so then, how did you discover Niseko then? Uh, well, um, interestingly, we were invited to a, uh, uh, to uh, to include a product. We were invited to a competition in Niseko for a large resort project in Hanazono. Um, uh, we discovered Hanazono um, by visiting the project site um, while we were doing our due diligence for this invited competition, um, as architects do. Uh, even though I had skied many, many times in Rusutsu, which is very nearby, I'd never actually visited Niseko. And this is uh, back in uh, uh, 2004, I think, um, and uh, and we ended up winning that competition. It was the, a design competition, as I say, for a new uh, resort master plan and resort architecture. And in the course of that uh, work, of course, we uh, explored every inch of Niseko, as we do as uh, architects, and discovered um, an extraordinary landscape, an extraordinary environment, and tremendous potential in an area that was previously quite underdeveloped and still undiscovered. Mm. And then from then on, it the, basically the ball had, had started rolling in terms of international attention. Yeah, uh, partially true. Um, actually, the ball had started rolling um, even before my first visit to Niseko. Um, at my first visit to Niseko, we discovered that there were already in place uh, primarily um, young Australian entrepreneurs who were setting up companies there uh, from uh, adventure sports companies to uh, shuttle bus services to assist foreigners visiting the area who 
would otherwise, back in those days, find it difficult to access the place if they couldn't speak Japanese. Um, but even more significantly, uh, a couple uh, of real estate developers who um, uh, hopefully they will not take offense at me saying that they were of course amateur real estate developers, they did not come as professional real estate developers, but they saw an opportunity to create the kind of accommodation uh, that was missing, designed specifically for the kinds of visitors that were beginning to come. Uh, those visitors were primarily in those days Australian visitors um, who were not particularly interested in staying in the multi-bed rooms of the traditional Japanese pension, but rather you know, were looking for accommodation uh, that was more akin to a, a reasonably priced hotel, or better still, a condominium or an apartment where they could bring their families and perhaps cook breakfast and maybe have dinner uh, together. They were looking for a different kind of accommodation which did not exist at that time. And these uh, entrepreneurs recognized an opportunity to create this kind of accommodation, started with one or two or three apartments, very quickly sold those and then uh, built six or ten or eight, uh, you know, uh, more. And then every year they were able to bring online um, more and more accommodation. So they really founded uh, the international part of uh, Niseko. So just for any viewers who are unclear about uh, Niseko, it's, it's, what is so special about the place that needed to be discovered? Sure. I mean, uh, this is the, the fundamental uh, draw for Niseko has always been for the Japanese visitors and now the increasing number of foreign visitors, uh, this remarkable phenomenon that produces around 15 meters of powder snow per annum. 15 meters of snow. Now think about that. Powder snow. And that is regular, it's, uh, it is predictable, uh, there is no risk that it will not snow. Uh, the snow begins in uh, November, by December there's absolutely um, a fresh, uh, layers of fresh powder snow. And basically it snows right through to um, April, May of the, the, the following year. And, and that's a combination of geographical and climate factors, right? That, that, from, that's from what correct. I've understood, it's, it's yeah. partly jet stream, partly there's the mountains that basically push the snow and keep the snow coming. Well, yeah, it's a complex system, but basically it's the cold air um, coming uh, eastwards from the Siberian um, uh, geography over the warm sea of Japan where moisture uh, rises up into those cold masses. Uh, as it approaches uh, Hokkaido, um, it's buffeted by uh, the, the Pacific air mass as well as the air masses over the straits between Hokkaido and Honshu. And the, the air mass, which uh, is cold and laden with moisture, um, rises up over geographic features such as the volcano, Mount Yote, and the mountain range of Niseko Anupuri. As it flows between those two mountain ranges, uh, or between those two geographic features um, along this valley, and rises, dumps the snow. So it's a combination of these uh, colliding air masses which are moisture laden um, and, uh, and being impacted by the natural uh, mountainous geography of southern Hokkaido. 
that produces this snow. And the culmination of all of this is actually a really uniquely, like on a global scale, a very right. unique phenomenon that allows so much fresh powder so low to the to the to the ground. That that's correct. Um, the the uh, elevations above sea level are quite low, so we don't have altitude issues. It snows not because we're high above sea level. It snows because of all these other uh, uh, aforementioned uh, geographic features. So we have the ability to, to ski in deep powder snow um, at levels from 300 meters above sea level to 1,300 meters above sea level. So um, uh, that's one, one aspect that is, is uh, quite unique. The other is that the snow, apparently according to some experts, contains a higher uh, degree of salt because it's primarily sea water that is being absorbed into the air masses. Uh, and that salt content apparently, according to some experts that I've spoken to, um, produces uh, or enhances the dry powdery characteristics of the snow. So for all of these reasons, um, uh, which are better understood by, by uh, people more qualified than me, uh, the snow quality is unique, the snow depth um, the, degree, the amount of powder snow is extraordinary and, uh, and, the, uh, uh, and the amenity that it provides, the predictable long season amenity of uh, fresh powder snow um, was uh, and has been one of the major driving forces between in, uh, uh, behind increasing visitorship to the area. Mm. So when we say discover Niseko, we're actually mm. not talking about this, this barren landscape, actually. I mean, there were people there, and what was discovered was, I think, what we're referring to as, like, you know, the economic potential uh, of bringing uh, a global audience to uh, a potentially new ski resort area. Right. There were, there were Japanese people there before the Australians found it. What, what, yes. what did they make of this? I mean, were they... Were they the, the farmer types or did they, were they the mm. entrepreneur types? Mm. What, what were the, Jap the local Japanese there doing yes. with this opportunity? Well, look, that's a very good question. And, um, uh, and let's remember that uh, today there's a million visitors a year to Niseko. Of those million visitors a year, only 100,000 at the moment are foreigners. Um, the number of foreigners is increasing. That 100,000 has been a very uh, rapidly increasing number, uh, whereas the number of Japanese visiting has been very steady. So prior to the foreigners coming to Niseko, yes, of course, uh, it was an established resort for the Japanese domestic tourist uh, um, market. Um, but the Japanese uh, visitors traditionally have very different expectations to foreign visitors. So the Japanese are content typically to buy a package tour from a JR station in Tokyo or Nagoya that includes uh, a pension accommodation which includes breakfast and dinner, ski hire and, and lift tickets. And that is the kind of visitorship that was happening before. Um, consequently, the resort was tailor-made to that kind of visitorship. Uh, the mountain um, well, in part, the resort was a number of disconnected, disparate lift systems. Uh, Tokyu, a railway, uh, uh, a railway uh, operator, uh, in, operator in, in Japan, yeah. 
owns one slice of Niseko Mountain. Chuo Bus owns another slice of Niseko Mountain and, and so forth. And previous, uh, previously, uh, those slices weren't connected. Each one sold uh, their own disparate ticket. And if you strayed into someone else's uh, system, you'd have to buy a ticket to get back. So, um, highly fragmented. It was highly really fragmented. Localized. There was really no uh, uh, integration of, uh, no, no economic integration, and, and in some ways, no physical integration of these disparate resorts. But that was sort of okay for the Japanese visitors who bought these package deals from those uh, transportation companies in the first place. Now, what, and, and so, you know, Niseko did have a limited number of restaurants, few, because as I say, most people ate at the hotels. They didn't wander about town looking for bars or looking for um, uh, F&B opportunities uh, after a day skiing. They pretty much skied all day, retired back to their hotel, ate in the hotel, took an onsen in their hotel and, and, um, and smoked cigarettes and, and then collapsed in a heap uh, uh, to start the next day early in the morning from that hotel. What the Australians brought uh, to the equation was uh, a Western concept of a ski resort where um, essentially you come to not just ski but to have a really good time and to eat and wander about and go to bars and, and, uh, and to, uh, uh, to meet people to have a social experience, a spontaneous social experience. And what that then uh, uh, entailed was a, uh, a transformation of the physical environment up there to accommodate those needs. Number one, it became clear um, with these more sophisticated expectations of foreign visitors and the increasingly sophisticated expectations of Japanese visitors too, that this disconnected series of disparate mountain slices was just no longer tenable. And so Niseko United was formed to create an interconnected series of, um, of, of uh, mountain of, of ski opportunities that were all available on a single lift pass. So this transformed uh, the, the breadth of skier opportunities on the mountain. Secondly, uh, with the advent of um, more bars, more restaurants, more cafes, more eating and dining and shopping opportunities uh, driven in large part by foreign entrepreneurs who recognized the demand and fulfill that demand by setting up uh, initially small and then increasingly larger operations. Uh, the landscape, the physical landscape of say, for example, Hirafu town, one of the main villages in Niseko, transformed into a place of a lot more variety and promenading in the evenings and people walking around after a ski day. So all these physical changes uh, came about as a consequence of, of the foreign entrepreneurs recognizing uh, foreign expectations and building to them. Well, when you, when you say came about too, I mean, it, it, there's still more to come. I mean, yes. in, terms of, in terms of what I think, in terms of making Niseko as, an, as a fully-fledged international ski resort, mm. what, can you tell, tell us about your involvement in, in bringing it to where it is today and where mm. you want to see it go from okay. now? Well, look, that's a good question. And, um, and actually, our involvement was initially uh, 
from being hired by a large Australian corporation to master plan a, a ski resort, a very large ski resort at the base of, uh, uh, of the Niseko Anapuri Mountain. In other words, um, a, essentially a new town, a new village. We were hired to design a new village uh, that was part of this overall lift system. Um, and that has evolved into um, uh, being master architects for uh, PCPD, a Hong Kong-based company owned by Richard Lee. Um, so while all this was happening, uh, other major uh, international developers have stepped in. YTL from Malaysia um, purchased um, uh, the, what was the Prince Hotel in Anupuri, which had been then sold to Citigroup that turned it into a Hilton Hotel. And now that has been purchased by YTL, who uh, are a very large uh, resort developer in, uh, in Southeast Asia. And their intention is to further expand it um, with a new village in Anupuri. Again, it's all connected to the, 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 the Niseko United lift pass system. It's all part of the Niseko system, but their intention is to expand it. And other significant developers have come in um, from Asia, from uh, China, and have purchased uh, a large tracts of land um, with the intention of developing uh, larger scale and five-star quality uh, resort uh, hotel accommodation um, in this area. So our involvement has been in parallel with the influx of professional uh, deep-pocketed real estate developers who are part of this new generation of developers um, who are taking Niseko into the future. Their projects um, will define what Niseko will become over the next 10, 15 years. Their projects, which are much larger in scale to anything that's happened in the past, uh, will um, essentially uh, uh, be the new Niseko. The DNA of Niseko is still there but they're fleshing it out with their resources. Very interesting point there. I mean, what you basically said in a nutshell is there's going to be, the future of NISECO is, is dependent on a lot of heavy foreign investment. Yes. How is, and you, earlier you mentioned as well on the ski lifts, they were fragmented. I mean, mm -hmm. when we say NISECO, we're actually talking about three different townships, right? Well, actually even more than three <laughs> different townships. In fact, um, we have a drawing right here. If we can zoom in on that, that'd be great. This is the Niseko Anapuri range, mountain range. And at the base of it is the main village, which is Grand Hirafu, or Hirafu village. But there's also, in this area called Higashiyama, um, the uh, Hilton Hotel and what we're now calling Niseko village, and an expanding village that is being driven in large part by YTL's operations. Then in Anupuri, which is owned by Chuo Bus, uh, uh, but has multiple ownership of all of the base uh, real estate by a number, a handful of, of developers, mostly international developers, is also expanding rapidly to become a, uh, a larger village in and of itself. Next door to that is Moiwa, which has always been a, a small village, again, working off of the same mountain, but that um, recently has been uh, uh, 
purchased, a large tracts have been purchased by foreign developers from Hong Kong and, uh, uh, and Singapore. And they are also rapidly um, uh, expanding their operations with the intention of increasing the, uh, the size of the village there. And then at the other side of the mountain here is uh, Hanazono, which as I mentioned earlier, uh, we were hired to master plan and we are now the master architects of a very large project uh, that is in construction and that is scheduled to be built over the next several years in phases. Um, Hong Kong developer Richard Lee, PCPD. Um, and so as you can see, uh, Niseko Mountain um, is the product of uh, six, at the moment, six uh, significant urban uh, places that are all expanding in their own right. Um, and and yeah. that's my point. Earlier you had mentioned uh, Niseko gets 1 million visitors a year, 10% mm. are foreigners, but those 10% yeah. basically are kind of spreading the word and, and, and drawing and being advocates, drawing yeah. these deep-pocketed investors. Yes. However, the word Niseko itself, mm. actually, like you mentioned, encompasses a bunch of different townships and stuff, True. whereas uh, the foreign people kind of say Niseko as being the whole area. Mm. When, when mm. a developer wants to come in or when you know, the economic mm. factors want to move something forward, are there any political factors that kind of clash with uh, the, the economic desires or is you know the the townships willing to work with mm. the developers or is it mm. what kind of a case is it in that sense well that that's a good question and first of all niseko as i say uh, the word comes from this mountain range which is the niseko anapuri mountain that's the mountain that people are skiing on and it so it happens as i've described that at the base of the mountain are various villages each village has a different name, but they're all part of the Niseko system. So Niseko really is an area. Um, it's an area that the name describes an area that contains a number of villages and a lift system which is interconnected and integrated. Um, the, the Niseko area is actually divided into two um, administrative um, municipalities, if you like. One is uh, Kuchan Town. Uh, for the uh, northern half of uh, the Niseko uh, area. The other is Niseko Village, uh, which is a township uh, some kilometers distant from uh, the Niseko Mountain, but they govern uh, the southern half of the mountain. So, and those are two political entities that are quite different in character. Most of the development happening today is in the Kuchan Cho, in the Kuchan Township uh, jurisdiction. Um, and that jurisdiction has traditionally and historically been an agricultural jurisdiction. Uh, the industries historically there and today have always been primarily um, agricultural. Um, and so the sensibilities of the people and of the governance of the town and the mayor and so forth is um, is let's say less internationally focused than you might expect for a, an area that is becoming increasingly an international destination. Uh, so they have been in the past, in the last uh, several years, in the last decade of uh, Niseko's uh, rapid growth, been somewhat bewildered by the, the nature of its growth, driven primarily by foreign investors. Um, but, um, and a bit skeptical, they've been, 
as is not atypical um, uh, in Japan, a bit skeptical of what foreigners will come up with and how enduring and sustainable these foreign ideas might be. But they've grown to see that notwithstanding the global financial crisis, the, uh, the earthquake uh, of 2011 and the subsequent disasters, um, they've seen that notwithstanding all of these hiccups, that there's been sustained growth and sustained visitorship, in, in fact, extraordinary increases in visitorship over time to this area by foreigners. That's the local township, and they recognize that there is something going on here, and they recognize that uh, there are employment opportunities uh, for the townspeople, employment opportunities for the youth that would otherwise migrate to the mainland because young people are not interested in becoming farmers and that there are increasing economic opportunities for the local uh, community as well. It's absolutely amazing when you go up there too. I mean, I was up there uh, a couple of months ago, and I, it's when you start talking to the locals and everything, it's almost more international than Tokyo hmm. in, in a lot of respects, the way it is now. The, what, so it's got this momentum, mm -hmm. okay? And it's got this, and, and uh, there's this momentum, and when I was up there as well, there was a lot of talk about using the Whistler model. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of in terms of growth, can you explain right. a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the Whistler model is basically a design village, a village that you can create in an integrated way from scratch because you're working with a blank sheet of paper. And actually, uh, and 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 Whistler was actually created that way. It was master planned and and done very successfully. And in a way, uh, that Whistler model is one that we are applying to our design for the Hanazono Resort. Um, and YTL are applying to the design of uh, their new village out at um, Niseko Village. And, and when you have a company-owned town or a single ownership of a large area, you have the opportunity to create everything according to an integrated image of your choosing. Uh, but that's not really possible so much in a town like uh, Hirafu, which is the product of multiple ownerships and a complex municipality. Um, but what they have learnt from Whistler, uh, and by they I mean the, uh, the authorities who govern the town, as well as uh, individual developers who um, have been doing their homework and looking at analogues for how they might develop within this environment, what they have learned from towns like Whistler, which by the way was based on Zermatt in Switzerland, an organic community that grew in an integrated way, what they've learned is that through the integration of, um, of uh, the multiple forces within a town, by bringing all the stakeholders, the disparate stakeholders together within a township, uh, bring them together around a common vision for how the town should evolve or how the area should evolve by agreeing uh, to what is important culturally and socially, um, architecturally about a place and, and then making sure you preserve it while allowing development to occur in a uh, responsible way through guidance and through rules um, and bylaws, you can actually um, you can actually create a place that has tremendous value uh, rather than allow it to evolve in a haphazard way. And Niseko, for all of those million visitors a year and the 100,000 plus that are coming 
uh, each year of foreigners, uh, is still it's in its embryonic form. We're early enough in its evolution to be able to influence uh, its growth into the future through, uh, through proper management, through, through good town planning. And we are, my company, uh, very much involved in that by uh, doing pro bono master plans, by creating, uh, as we did a few years ago, a master plan design for the new Main Street, which attracted uh, $12 million of government funding for its implementation. The first phase of it has, has been complete and the next two phases will be completed uh, in the next couple of years. So the national government, uh, as well as the regional government, as well as the local governments, recognize that Niseko has tremendous value going forwards. Uh, they recognize the need for public investment in the area. They have actually followed up with, uh, with significant sums of, sums of money to actually effect that public investment. So they're actually doing it. They're not just talking about it. The government is actually doing it. And, and they, they are um, uh, doing what is necessary to create uh, not just the physical infrastructure improvements, but also create uh, um, or legislation, let's say, in terms of master plans and bylaws uh, to guide a future development so that the end result will be of maximum value to everybody. So is this, is this like a steady march to success then? I mean, over the next five, 10 years, or are there places where that, the, process, the, the process could come unhinged, where it could delay perhaps any growth or implementation of, of any of the plans that you've drawn up? Uh, that, that, that's a good question. Um, I'd have to say that it's a steady march to success because we have, uh, in part because we have government backing, I mean, serious government backing in the form of uh, encouragement as well as government investment in the area. And I just talked about Hirafuzaka, the new main street that the government is building with government funding. Um, and by the way, it's the first uh, foreign designed piece of public infrastructure in Japan. So that's quite interesting, okay. Um, uh, but we also see the government investing in um, the Shinkansen that will, uh, will bring Tokyo uh, to within three and a half hours of Niseko once it's completed. Uh, we've seen government investment uh, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in the new Chitose Airport, which now has direct flights to northern Europe, all parts of Asia, China, and even the United States. So we're seeing an influx of people from Finland and Scandinavia, as well as America and France and Italy, in addition to, of course, all the people coming from Singapore and Malaysia and China and so forth. So, so that's one aspect that will give this a, uh, a high degree of sustainability going forwards. The other is because there's an enduring capability on the part of the individual investors, the individual real estate developers that has been tested pretty thoroughly over the last five years. Again, I mentioned the global financial crisis, um, uh, the Tohoku disaster, Fukushima, these were major hits to the Japanese economy. They were major hits to the global economy. Um, and discretionary spending, uh, tourism, are one of the first things to suffer when you have these kinds of uh, uh, significant economic catastrophes. And what we've seen is a rapid bounce back, notwithstanding the, the gravity of those events. 
this area, and proven by the visitorship numbers, has bounced back significantly. If, if we can zoom in on this, actually, right here, this is a pretty, this is a pretty significant slide that we have. Right. This is visitorship from 2001 to 2012, foreign visitors to the Niseko area. And it went from about 5,000 visitors, foreign visitors, in 2001 to close to 100,000 visitors in 2012. What we see was, we see a dip that happened in 2007 and 2008. This is the global financial crisis, the GFC. And then it very quickly bounced back the following year to where the graph, basically, that the curve essentially remained untouched. And then another very steep incline as a result of the, uh, primarily the 2011, a uh, sorry, a decline yeah. uh, because of the to Tohoku disaster. But then after the Tohoku disaster, look at that. That's just like New right. York right there. Right. So, so this winter, um, we've seen a 30% increase over the last record year of visitorship to the area. So you know, what we're seeing, if we average this out, we see that there is a sustainable steady growth that somehow manages to deal with significant um, economic disasters and natural disasters of an epic scale. So that's why I'm sort of confident in saying, I mean, if you'd asked me this two or three years ago, I'd say, well, you know, I'm not sure that, um, that it can outlive some of these uh, global perturbations. But actually we have done, they, the area has managed to recover quickly, notwithstanding the, the, the scale of, of those events. And, and, and so the question is how and why? Why does it, why do people come back? Why, why is it able to recover so quickly? And I'd have to say the answer is one, um, political will. You know, there's enough support from the government to show that uh, the government's behind it. Well, that's a great point. I mean, like you, you basically what you've outlined for us is you've, you, you've shown how direct foreign investment can actually mm. instigate support from a local government. Right. And even all the way up to a national level to the, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars yes. in, in infrastructure layout yeah. and, and commissioning and planning and, right. and et cetera. Japan with its image of kind of, you know, this goes against completely the, the, the image of, of Japan as kind of being closed to foreigners and, and difficult right. to do business with. Right. The local authorities in Niseko, given yes. where it is now, are they easier to deal with now than they were maybe five years ago? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and that's also a very interesting uh, cultural uh, phenomenon. So five years ago, they were a little, as I say, a little bit skeptical and, and bewildered by what foreigners intended to do, and they were being very careful about approvals and so forth. Now they understand through experience what foreigners uh, want to do and, and they understand the vision of the future. So they're very amenable, they're very easy to deal with. Um, but now we're going through a new stage, interestingly, a new stage of evolution of the, uh, the mindset of the local authorities. And that is that now they're beginning to see uh, large development companies come into the area purchase these large tracts of land, knock down the pre-existing hotels, which might have been, you know, a little bit decrepit to start with, in order to avoid paying asset tax. Um, and rather than replace them quickly with their five-star uh, uh, properties, they're waiting. They're waiting um, 
until, uh, well, they've got their financing organized. They're waiting until they're sure that the global economy's uh, recovery is, uh, is assured. Uh, they're waiting for someone else to start first or whatever. So these larger de uh, developer, institutional developers um, are in their land banking mode currently, which may all uh, end next year because we've seen such a tremendous uh, uh, growth uh, in visitorship this last or th this current season, or it may last another year or two. But um, but what the local authorities are realizing now is that foreign uh, development compulsion is not the same as Japanese development compulsion. In Japan, when a developer buys a piece of land, you can bet he's going to put a building on it pretty quick smart. And all the laws and the rules and the regulations in Japan are designed to accommodate that uh, rapid turnover of buildings. What they're not used to is people buying land and then sitting on it for years at a time. So they don't have the protections in place to assure that an area will retain its um, uh, energy, its social, uh, its social electricity, if you like, uh, through uh, constant renewal and constant growth. Those, so the local authorities now are becoming a bit skeptical of institutional investors who are coming in uh, and requiring commitments by those institutional investors to, uh, to develop within a certain time frame. Let's say they're experimenting with uh, language uh, in, in requesting these developers to, uh, to move forwards within a, within a reasonable time frame. Is this in the and shape of a bylaw or is this in the shape well, of Well, that's, that's what they're talking about or? now. Those, okay. th those requirements aren't in place. At the moment, it's in the shape of memorandums of understanding, MOUs. Okay. At the time of purchase? At the time of purchase, especially if the developer is wanting to purchase some uh, government-owned land as part of their acquisition, or if the developer is looking to, uh, uh, to, uh, to enhance the infrastructure uh, to service their land or whatever. There's always a, of course, there's always an interdependence between larger landholders and, and, and the government or the local authorities because of infrastructure requirements and permit requirements. Um, so uh, currently there have been, um, there's been a, a let's say, uh, an evolution of the language of memoranda of understanding uh, to to encourage developers to build within a healthy time frame. That may result in the next few years possibly in uh, changes of legislation, maybe changes of tax laws that, um, that as they exist today, encourage uh, land purchasers to demolish uh, uh, buildings that are not performing well rather than hang on to them uh, but rather demolish them in order to achieve certain tax advantages um, uh, and then let the land lie fallow until they're ready to replace the, uh, those, those buildings. So new laws may well uh, assist these developers uh, in r retaining those buildings, even if they're old and they're not generating much in the way of, of revenue, 
um, but still are part of the social environment of these villages, um, retain those buildings until such a time as it's, uh, it's convenient to knock them down to make way for the new development. So these are these are little these are uh, there's a process of tweaking, um, of tweaking local codes and of tweaking tax laws and 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 legislation to arrive at what everybody wants in the area, and that is to maintain and sustain an energetic, um, uh, uh, vibrant uh, local economy and vibrant uh, social landscape in the area. So it's an evolving process. Hmm. So it's a steady march to success. Mm. Uh, it's, it's seen its ups and downs, but mainly ups. Mm. Um, foreign investment, it's a story of foreign investment that has spurred uh, local support to bring it to mm. where it is today. This Niseko is the most fleshed out model of foreign direct investment right. in Japan that has, a, that has the most tangible effect on a location. Yeah. Are there, where else can this model be applied to in Japan, do you think? Is right. there any other potential hotspots that, that uh, you could apply the same type of thing to. Yeah. Um, um, interestingly, uh, Hakuba uh, in Nagano is another area where foreign investment um, has been in place uh, for several years now. And in fact, a lot of the Australian entrepreneurs that came into Niseko back in 2001 and earlier and saw uh, the, the rapid rise of value as a result of, of the changing... Um, uh, of the branding, let's say, of the of the broadcasting of the new Niseko brand, um, they saw an opportunity uh, in Hakuba, in uh, in Nagano, um, to do the same thing. And so it's interesting. Where does the money go? Where does the smart money go? I mean, uh, the the free market is always looking for these opportunities. As architects and master planners, we we actually follow them because they hire our services. Um, and what we see is that that area um, has been earmarked for perhaps uh, the next growth area in foreign direct investment in, an, in a resort uh, environment. Um, there are some limitations to that area, though. Uh, they have some handicaps, which... Um, uh, in the which Hakuba Niseko, area. In the Hakuba area, yep. yeah, which, which don't exist here. Uh, but they may well be able to overcome those handicaps uh, over time. Um, I, uh, as far as other ski resorts are concerned, uh, we haven't seen much success uh, or much evidence of foreign direct investment yet in alternative locations. Even if it's not a ski resort, is there anything mm. south, more mm. closer to the equator that you can see perhaps some sure. Okinawan potential or yes. something in Kyushu? Yeah, well, certainly Okinawa is a, uh, is a logical uh, destination for um, foreign direct investment, except that um, uh, Okinawa has its own challenges with respect to um, with respect to the participation of the uh, local government, and also Okinawa has always been a popular tourist destination for the domestic tourism industry. So. In Okinawa, there are already established Japanese uh, development companies that have uh, built up an infrastructure of tourist-related resources, primarily aimed at the Japanese market. For foreigners to come in and compete maybe is a little more challenging. 
One of the things about Hokkaido, uh, well, Niseko in particular, is that the Japanese institutional developers haven't really done much up there and are not doing much up there yet either uh, for, for various reasons. Um, and so it's actually pretty good for foreign investors because they don't have much local competition, if you like. Is that a threat in the future? Say because of foreign direct investment that um, gets past a certain size and then yeah. the domestic move players decide, okay, well, we're going to start, you know, throwing our weight around up there. What are the challenges yeah. that can happen up Look, there because of that? I think, my, my, from my perspective, I think it's a, it's a high quality problem if it were to happen. I see no evidence of it happening yet. But if it were to happen, I think it would be very good because the, uh, the institutional uh, domestic uh, development companies like Tokyo, for example, that own one of the lift systems and that own one of the hotels there, um, they know that the landscape for them in the future has to be of a much higher quality than what they had conceived of in the past. If they are to invest in the area, they'll be building to international standards, not domestic standards. Um, they will uh, be contributing to the area in a way that uh, is compatible with, with Niseko's international brand image. It's no longer, it no longer has a, a, um, a, a local brand image. The, the expectations have become more sophisticated uh, and therefore uh, Japanese developers will need to conform to those expectations which I think is good. Look, competition is good, whether the competition is coming from abroad or whether it's coming from uh, the domestic market, um, it all drives uh, improvement. Um, I just don't see it happening yet from the domestic side. There's been no evidence of that yet. Interesting. Mm. So you've got a situation in Niseko as well that also solves the demographic issue too. I mean, earlier you had mentioned that okay, because we've got a, we've got a lot of great tourism and mm -hmm. uh, facilities here, needs creating jobs, creating opportunities. The young people are actually staying in Niseko right. as well. How excited is the are the gov is the government yeah. on all levels about that yeah. demographic yes. reversal of of what's happening in the rest of the country? Look, they're very excited. They're extremely excited. They understand it. The numbers are clear. Um, not only are the young people staying, but there's actually a net in-migration of young people from Honshu and, uh, and wow. the other islands. I'm talking about Japanese, young Japanese, who are coming here uh, to service the tourist, the burgeoning tourist industry. Um, and that's been going on for several years now. So we're seeing a growth of employment that is overtaking what the local population is able to serve. Now, that's a very good thing for obvious reasons. Um, in addition to that, um, the local agricultural producers, and this is really key, uh, they're so proud of their products there. They're so proud of um, you know, their potatoes and their corn and all their wonderful um, agricultural produce in the area. They are seeing that foreigners, especially foreigners coming from Asia, from uh, Southeast Asia and the Far East, they're seeing these people come to enjoy Japanese restaurants, Japanese produce, Japanese um, foodstuffs, and they do. You know, the culinary arts are uh, a particular orientation of um, Asian vis visitors. And what they see is um, a, uh, th an ability to showcase their products in this area. So what we're seeing now is the, these local farmers are repackaging their wares, repackaging their products in a way that is um, 
not just appealing, but actually convenient for foreign visitors to buy and take home as souvenirs or, or in bulk uh, for their needs back wherever they come from. So there's an enthusiasm amongst the local uh, 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 agricultural community, not just because of increased employment aspects for their children or, or for other Japanese, but also because um, there's an ec economic and cultural um, appreciation of what they do. Now, there's a downside to this as well. Um, that's all positive and it's all understood. The downside with this uh, rapid development of these uh, uh, traditional agricultural communities is that um, you inevitably displace uh, a lot of the vernacular um, amenities uh, with new amenities. So, whereas before you may have had a traditional Japanese restaurant um, in a pension building on the main street, um, the restaurant run by the grandmother of the owner of the pension, the grandmother who goes to uh, the coast every morning to get fresh seaweed for their, uh, for their cuisine. Um, suddenly they find themselves sitting on a piece of property that's worth you know, 40 times what they paid for it. Um, and for whatever reason they decide to sell. Well, the, typically they're selling to a foreigner who sees that property being on the main street as uh, as underutilized and they will replace it with a building of higher and better use. This is free market economics at work. Um, and yes, they may well have a retail component within that larger building. Um, it won't be a pension, of course, it'll be a series of apartments with a retail space on the ground floor. That retail space demands a certain rental income um, uh, to justify its existence the grandmother in her restaurant can't pay those rental rates. Um, and so what may well go in there and what we've seen go in are things like perhaps a pizza restaurant or some other perhaps Western branded restaurant, um, which displaces a, uh, a traditionally vernacular um, um, idiosyncratic Japanese uh, uh, restaurant. So, so this is one of the darker sides of this development uh, scenario is that unless you can put protections in place to, to preserve um, some, some of the characteristics of a traditional Japanese community, which may not be uh, 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 revenue generating in, in, in the sort of stellar way that some of these other uses might be, then you may lose those Japanese characteristics. It's a complex formula. Yeah. It, it invokes images of colonization. I mean, well, in, in some, not to that extent, but I mean, like, not to the extent that it was sure. in a historical sense, but you've sure. got, okay, you've got the traditional kind of being replaced with, you know, the big flashy pizza mm. shop and, mm. and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Are there some people there mm. that have that kind of that attitude to it? Yeah, look, um, uh, to some degree, yes, there's a certain amount of colonization that's happening. Um, it's not all negative. The, 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 there's a self-correcting aspect to it too, because as I say, a lot of the foreign visitors are not coming to eat pizza and they're not coming to eat Indian curry. They're coming to eat Japanese food. Mm. And so what's happening yeah. is that um, uh, young uh, or um, uh, 
strategically capable uh, Japanese uh, uh, entrepreneurs are uh, opening Japanese restaurants that can cater to those foreign needs and producing Japanese food of, of you know, very good quality, um, but doing it in a strategic way. So, for example, with a bilingual menu that previously didn't exist, therefore immediately accessible to foreigners. So these opportunities are available for Japanese entrepreneurs, and we're seeing an influx of these young Japanese entrepreneurs who are creating, or let's say, uh, they are expanding the menu of choices available to visitors um, from a Japanese uh, culinary tradition. Um, uh, but uh, the downside is only that they have to operate within a new economic reality. Rents are going to be higher, their revenues have to be higher, they have to be more clever about how they appeal, how they make money, how they uh, run their businesses, they have to be efficient, they have to market their services. You know, so it's an evolution of, of a system that is driven in large part because of these colonizing forces that are impacting the economy. Okay. Well, we've pretty much gone over everything there. I mean, is there anything you'd like to, to, to say in, in sum up, in, uh, to sum up uh, what we've talked about? Is, is there more agricultural yeah. opportunity or land that, that in other areas that are, that are good for development well, look, in a different way? Or? Yes. Um, well, I can say that, first of all, what, 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 what we're seeing there in Niseko is an interesting model of development um, that involves, or that's actually been, um, let's say, um, uh, catalyzed primarily by uh, foreign investors, uh, by foreign entrepreneurs who recognized an opportunity that, that um, prior generations of inhabitants hadn't recognized. Um, and, what, and the net result of that is, uh, uh, is the projects, for example, that we're working on and other architects are working on, which is uh, really interesting buildings, really interesting uh, planning projects, really beautiful resorts. We're seeing a, um, an amelioration of the built landscape in the area. Uh, dowdy streets with overhead power lines and slippery sidewalks and or non-existent sidewalks are now being converted to become uh, much more beautiful, much more user-friendly, much safer, much more attractive um, uh, uh, urban environments with beautiful buildings, uh, with international architecture, um, and uh, and a broader range of of uh, amenities and opportunities for Japanese visitors as well as foreign visitors. So there's an amelioration of the natural uh, of the cultural environment. The natural environment is not suffering. Uh, because, you know, Japanese environmental laws are strong enough to protect them and we have to apply those laws to any uh, building or uh, resort project development that, that we conceive. Uh, in fact, what's happening is we're protecting, we're further bolstering the integrity of the natural environment by having the economic power that private development provides us with to enhance the natural environment, to protect it, to create the infrastructure necessary to further protect the natural environment. 
Thanks for listening, and remember to subscribe to this podcast and get notified when we publish something new. Also, feel free to send feedback to me at german at housingjapan.com as we are always interested in making this show better and more relevant to you, the listener. Visit www.housingjapan.com for more real estate property listing information. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.